Hello, and welcome to the Dragonlance Canticle podcast. My name is Megan. This is part two of my interview with former TSR author slash editor and current Chaosium executive editor, James Lauder. In this episode, we will be discussing Lord Soth, the Knight of the Black Rose. We'll discuss how James became the writer for two Lord Soth novels, and then we'll discuss the character of Lord Soth himself in the 21st century. If you're interested in learning more about Soth, please visit us at dragonlancenexus.com. If you're a fan of the Dragonlance Nexus, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash dragonlancenexus. And as always, you can find us on Facebook, on YouTube, and on Twitter at DLNexus. The Dragonlance Nexus is proud to present the Dragonlance Canticle. Now I'd like to shift to the second topic of our interview, Lord Soth. As I mentioned earlier, you are the author of two Lord Soth novels, both in the Ravenloft setting, Knight of the Black Rose in 1991 and Spectre of the Black Rose, which you co-wrote with Veronica Whitney Robinson in 1999. You also wrote the short story, Rigor of the Game, featuring Lord Soth, which appeared in the anthology Tales of Ravenloft, edited by Brian Thompson in 1994. And of course, we and all our listeners know that Lord Soth originated from the Dragonlance setting. He was once a Knight of Salamnia, a Knight of the Rose to be specific, and the Lord of Dargard Keep before his pride and jealousy turned him towards evil. As punishment for his many crimes, Soth was cursed to exist for countless lifetimes as a Death Knight. He fought beside Kidiara Uthmatar during the War of the Lance and the Blue Ladies' War. After betraying Kidiara in order to claim her soul, he was ultimately drawn in by the mists of Ravenloft. And I should mention here for listeners that there will be spoilers ahead for both Lord Soth novels as well as the Dragonlance War of Souls trilogy. So please tell me about the development of Knight of the Black Rose. I understand it was not a smooth process initially. How did the project come to be and how did you come to be the author? Oh, a nightmare in itself. Um, <laughs> so uh, initially I was brought into the, to the project when I was assigned to take over the new, at the time, Ravenloft fiction line, which was being put together because that was going to require a lot of collaboration with the game department. Bruce Nesmith, Andrea Hayday, and Bill Connors were doing a lot of work developing Ravenloft material on the game side, the box set, and then the supplemental material. It was a, an easy assignment for me, first, because I could do both the fiction and the game material, and second, because I was very interested in horror and horror-leaning fiction. My, my interest in fantasy has always been Moorcock, Le Guin, Ellison from the science fiction side, Mervyn Peak, things like that, that are, are sort of cross-genre fantasy and, and horror-leaning. So initially, I was dead set against the book. Uh, when I no, don't tell me that. I I know <laughs> it. Um, the 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 irony of all of this is not lost on me. Uh, that the the book has sold the best of any of the books that I wrote. I didn't <laughs> want to see it happen, and I actually didn't <laughs> want to write it. So the initial idea was that the first two Ravenloft books would include, because of the nature of, of Ravenloft, first somebody from the Forgotten Realms and then somebody from Dragonlance being pulled into the mists and deposited 
in the dark domains, and then it would tell their story. Obviously, Strahd was the signature character, uh, but the story, Strahd's story was pretty well known. So the angle that Christy Golden and, and we came up with for that was that Christy would create a, a new character, Chander, who would be the window in then to Strahd's story. And that worked really well. Uh, Jander was an original character. Christy got the room she needed to tell the story she wanted to tell. It was an interesting novel take on Strahd's story. Uh, when it came to Dragonlance, the idea was, well, Soth's not doing anything right now. And Margaret and Tracy were on the outs with TSR at the time because of absolutely justifiable unhappiness with the contracts they had been given at the time and the refusal of the company to share the massive success of, of those six books with them. Uh, they, they were on bad terms with TSR at that point. I didn't know a lot of the details of that as junior editor coming in on these things. And I'd never met Margaret and Tracy uh, before. I, they, they were gone by the time I started. But I didn't like the idea of taking such an established character from the first six books and then sort of wrenching him out of the context of those novels. Uh, my idea was that Margaret and Tracy may eventually want to come back. And it was a good idea for the company to leave the door open. And one of the ways you do that is you don't mess up their characters while they're away. Mm -hmm. um, I lobbied pretty hard for Soth not to be the Dragonlance character. Um, and I lost. At, once that happened, Mary Kirchhoff basically let me take control of the project and try and put it into a context that would be the best possible outcome for that book that was definitely going to happen. Now, the, the company's decision to use Soth that way was perfectly within the rights for the contract. It was work for hire, which means TSR owned the character and could do anything they wanted with it. They didn't need anyone's permission to do that because you can do something and because you should do something are two different arguments there. So the first thing I did was call Margaret and uh, out of the blue, uh, having never spoken to Margaret before, and said, so this Soth book is going to happen do you and Tracy want to write it? Mary warned me that it was probably not going to be a terribly pleasant conversation. Oh, my goodness. Um, but I wanted to make sure they had the option if they wanted to come in, if it was important enough for them to come back and do it. Because Mary and I had actually improved the rates that people were being paid for the fiction. We had improved some of the contract terms. There were at least there could have been a discussion. Margaret was an absolute sweetheart in that conversation. Looking back over 30 years, she would have been absolutely <laughs> within her, within her rights to be less than pleasant to be. She was, she was great. As I recall, she talked to Tracy, got back to me. Their answer was a definitive no. I then said, I would be willing as editor to pass all of the editorial material by them for their review so that they could look at the plot and they could feel like they could steer the project away from doing something that would ruin the character for them. Uh, they also passed, but again, I totally understand. TSR had treated them very badly, and I, and I get why they said that. So where we left it 
was I told Margaret that I would share any of the notes that I came up with on SOTS continuity with them, and that if they changed their mind, that they were welcome to have input on the project at any stage if they wanted. That never happened. I did pass all my notes to Margaret, which she was grateful for. Um, I spent a lot of time looking into SOTS history and trying to come up with a decent unified version of the story because some of the modules uh, scenarios had gone off in weird directions and changed parts of the, the background story for it. So I created a version of the story that was true to Margaret Tracy's novels primarily and then pulled in what I could from the supporting game material. We, at the time, the way we were handling the Ravenloft novels, those were sent out for audition. Uh, one of the other things that Mary Kirchhoff and I developed as uh, part of the innovations in the book department uh, that she let me uh, let me spearhead was we would send out open calls. Anybody could submit for these books. If you sent in a slush submission for a creator-owned novel that we rejected and the writing was good, we would offer to put you on the list for work-for-hire auditions. Uh, several authors ended up on, on the audition process that way. And this is how we got Christy Golden for Vampire the Myths. Christy came in through the, the submission process. When those submissions came in, they were a couple of chapters at the beginning of the book, and then a plot outline. This is what I would do with the story, about 10 pages long. And we would look at those and wow, this is a story we want to we wanna publish. The names were taken off of those. So we actually had, as we were reviewing those in the department, we had no idea if the person submitting that book was four doors down the hall from us or a brand new author or somebody who had published 20 novels. And there were people who got novels in there and the Harpers were run um, largely the same way. There were people who got novels over much more experienced writers that way. There were writers we rejected for those books who did have five and ten novels to their credit. And Christy was the one who got it. Mm -hmm. So uh, we hired an author for Night of the Black Rose. And then it turned out after I got the first, oh, I think it was the first section of prose from the author, not the writing sample, but the first turnover for the book, where I basically realized that this person hadn't written a proposal. Hmm. So I got the really unpleasant task of calling them on the phone and saying, you didn't write this, did you? And they admitted it, that they had had a lot of help. And we ended up firing them. Oh, that's not a pleasant story. Uh, it's super <laughs> unpleasant. It's the, um, the, when we so, so I imagine, like I said, I imagine this, this novel just uh, appeared fully formed from your brain and then right. appeared on my bookstore shelf. I never thought right. about this whole yeah, so, so what's going on behind the scenes. You don't think the, about those the, things when you're like 13. <laughs> right. Sure. Right. Um, nobody wants to see how the sausages get made. Um, so, and, and because we were such a small department, all of this, it was always all hands on deck for everything that was going on. You would have somebody walk into your office on a day and just say, quick, I need back cover copy or go upstairs and talk to Brom and Clyde Carwell and Jeff Easley 
about the paintings that they're doing for these books that are being written while they're painting the covers. You told a story on the Modern Mythos podcast where you talked about when you were writing Night of the Black Rose that you got to go see Clyde Caldwell painting the cover. I think that's so cool. I love that. I love That's one of my favorite covers to this day. Yes, and that cover is, is amazing. For the cover for Night of the Black Rose, uh, because the series had a look to it that was already basically established, we knew what those first two books were going to look like, that Clyde had determined pretty much that. It was going to be the vampire figure and then saw with the with the graphic design. For uh, Prince of Lies, I got to give Brahm input before he started painting and say, you know, here are some Gustav Doré illustrations and we want this kind of feel for Doré Inferno uh, designs. And he worked that into the to the cover that he painted. Working with the artist was one of those elements of working at TSR in the Sheridan Springs Road offices that I, I wish I had understood at the time how amazing that really was. So this was a book I wasn't terribly enthused about. We lost the author. At the time, the book was on the schedule and had to be finished by a certain point. It was, it had already been announced and the wheels were moving and it was going to happen. So we scrambled and Mary Kirchhoff and I ran a second round of blind submissions for the book. Uh, that was largely restricted to people in-house and then other people who had either done Dragonlance novels or had really strong submissions that we came very close to buying. We needed to, to get a really good proposal for this really fast. So we went through and did that second round um, and again, reviewed them all blind. Everybody's names were taken off of them and none of them worked. And there were lots of good proposals and good stories proposed. But at core, they wanted to mess with Soth's character. They wanted to turn him human or they wanted to do something where the Soth at the end of the book would be radically different from the Soth as Margaret and Tracy had left. And I was dead set against that happening. That, that was my idea for the book was that we needed to find a way to tell an interesting story. As Christie had done with with Jander and uh, and Strahd, where Strahd is not different at the end of that book, it's Jander that makes the the character arc. And so I was dead set on on that happening for Soth as well. And it got to a point Mary Kirchhoff called me into her office and said, "You are not going to want to hear this, but you are the only person who can write, who can write this book." And Mary had been my editor on uh, Crusade the first, uh, the Empire's Trilogy book, which I had gotten the assignment for blind, like everybody else, which I think was really fair. I'm I'm very happy that happened because I know I didn't get that assignment based on who I was. I got my assignment on that based on the proposal I put together. And so then I, I so I wrote the book. <laughs> just like and, that. <laughs> just like that. And, and in a way, the challenges that I had set up for what the book was supposed to achieve end up being reflected in the plot. It became really the central point for the story that Soth eventually gets to the point where he starts failing to remember who he is. And that's the change for him. Mm -hmm. The change is not that his story changes, his relation to his story changes. And then that explicitly set up because I had mentioned this 
to Margaret and Tracy too, that I was going to leave that book with a with an out so that if they came back, because it was still not sure, they were doing some things on the on the periphery for TSR, the, the Tales anthology, but they weren't really working with the company actively. That if they if they came back and they wanted the character back, the out was that he remembered who he was and that could trigger his escape from Ravenloft. So what is the, you know, what's the torture for the dark powers of the torture that Soth realizes there are powers bigger than him, that they mess with his memory and he forgets who he is because that's his pride is his central thing. Um, he is so concerned about his story being told the right way and the Banshees tell it badly at the end and mess things up. That's the best torture you can get for that sort of thing. And it became, to me, it became this sort of meta thing about how all of this was being handled at the company, uh, creatively too, because I was, I was insistent that Soth's story was going to stay intact. And so, you know, that, that became the, that became the central point for it. So Spectre of the Black Rose, the mechanism for Spectre of the Black Rose in that arc was built into that first novel. I knew where Spectre ended. When I wrote Night, that was already my assumption. So it's interesting because the idea that a character doesn't change, it worked in two ways. Because on the one hand, you didn't want to change, you didn't want Soth to change because you wanted uh, Margaret and Tracy to be able to take the character back if they chose to. Right. But this inability to change is sort of part and parcel with these Dark Lords. We have this conception of these Dark Lords sort of torturing these characters. Editor's note. I meant to say dark powers torturing these characters, but these characters are torturing themselves in a lot of ways too. Right. Um, and, and is it, is it that they can't change because the powers are influencing them or is it just, they can't change because that's who they are. They're just these rotten people. And if, you know, if somebody was, had done evil and was brought into Ravenloft, but they had this ability to change, well, then what would the dark powers want with them? Right. Um, oh, that's it. Yes. Oh, that's exactly right. And, and so right from the start, with Night of the Black Rose, the emphasis in the story is on broken perspectives on storytelling. That's entirely why that chapter with the Siege of Palanthus is is the opening chapter for the story. Yeah, so that's the chapter where if anybody hasn't if anybody hasn't read it or doesn't remember, it's it's the Siege of Palanthus, which we get sort of from Tasselhoff and Tannis's point of view in um, Test of the Twins, we get that from Soth's point of view. And, and Soth is wrong. <laughs> yeah, is and that, that sort of continues through the whole novel. I mean, Soth's vision of himself and his conception of his story is just is so twisted. He doesn't see himself for what he truly is. Everything is sort of everybody else's fault, except his. Yeah, and that's that was his read on... So, so in the Siege of Palanthus, you get that take, that moment where Tannis runs away. Mm-hmm. And Soth immediately said, well, of course, he's a coward and a jerk. And I was right about this all along. And look at that weakling go. And we know from reading Margaret and Tracy that that's completely not true. Yeah. That is not, there, there's a larger context to what Tannis is doing in that. And he is actually heroic. And, and Soth cannot understand that and cannot get out of his head to think that there might be other reasons for these people to do things other than he ran away from me. Of course he did. There's a lot in the, 
not not just in your novels, but also in the the second edition module when Black Roses Bloom, which is mirrors are a consistent theme. So Soth has these memory mirrors that he travels into to witness these sort of witnesses past as he might have wished it had happened. Right. And it, it seems like the overarching theme of of the two the two novels and also the game and also the game module is is this sort of theme of fractured history like a looking into a broken mirror everything is fractured and nothing looks right yep. um and that's sort of that's sort of how soth sees the world how soth sees himself and that that's illustrated in these metaphors the metaphors right. of the mirrors and, and soth sort of he makes a snide remark at some point in night of the black rose about how you can't trust historians to tell the truth accurately right. it's like well Asinus Aplantis does tell the truth accurately. It's Soth right. who's not accurate. Oh, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and that's all very metatextual at that point. I mean, and that's intentionally so. And that that was because the problems with telling that story without breaking the story for Margaret Tracy. Uh, so the the Black Roses Bloom. Lisa Smedman was the final writer on on that. But but I had actually provided the plotting and the memory mirror stuff as I, I was originally slated to to write it. And then in the night with the 94 breakup with the company, when I went off unhappily, that that product got reassigned. And, and Lisa did a very good job with it. I don't know. A fun adventure. I just I'm wrapping it up right now with my fantastic. Yeah, Lisa's Lisa's uh, an excellent writer. And I don't know how much of the material Bruce heard, who was the head of freelance at that point, would have given her. I do know that I turned over my notes, which included the memory mirror stuff and the, and the um, the idea that this was going to be vignettes and it was going to be continuing that fragment because that's that's the arc, right? That's, you know, as time goes on and you see Soth become less and less active. There was one other uh, short story that I had plotted out that I was going to write for a dragon that eventually didn't happen called um, All the Colors of Sorrow, which was going to be about Scythic and elves uh, trying to get the flowers to bloom different colors than they did. Oh, that sounds like a really nice story. I would like to read that. And Soth in that one is a complete immobile figure on the throne. So that's after the uh, Black Roses Blue. Right. He has so fallen into himself that he is effectively just a fixed point at the center of the domain. And that's where he is at the start of, of uh, Spectre. Is it hard to write a character who doesn't change? It is. The, one of the ways you, you get around that is you introduce supporting cast. And that was Azrael and Magda were very specifically intended in Night of the Black Rose to be the characters, uh, Magda especially, that the reader could sympathize with. Because mm -hmm. Magda is really the hero of that book. Yeah, she is. She's the only she's the only person who's not a mass murderer. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and she's and she is a good person who wants to be a hero and. That's one of the downsides of it's it's a positive and it's one of the downsides of working in shared worlds uh, long term is there were things with Magda and Inza and Kulchek, the mythical Vistani hero that I created, who was a hero who was generally who was not within the game definition of the Vistani and neither was Magda. Magda was not game definition Vistani that I would have liked to develop long term over the over the course of the stuff but once you do the books it's actually out of your control 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, as Margaret and Tracy found out when TSR decided to put Soth in Ravenloft. I wanted to ask about um, whether the the characters, Azrael, Magda, whether they preceded, uh, oh, and Caradoc too, whether they preceded right. uh, the adventure. And it sounds like from what you've told me, they did. So you you created those characters yourself yes. and then they continued on into the adventure. Correct. Yes. Okay. So yeah, Ma- Magda, um, uh, Azrael, and Caradoc were all characters I created. And, and, you know, Caradoc, again, is his entire hook at the beginning after Soth breaks his neck is that it, he's walking around with a broken neck, seeing the world from this, you know, new mm-hmm. perspective. And it's all very overtly about perspective for that as well. When I was, you know, reading this as a younger person, I was like, oh, just reading it as a sort of adventure story with this cool person. But rereading it as an adult for my podcast and reading it with sort of a critical eye, I start to notice all these different, all these different things coming coming to the fore, like the mirrors and and Caradoc with his broken neck, looking at everything sideways, and it's it's really interesting. And I think that I think that probably Night of the Black Rose holds up well among the Ravenloft novels precisely for that reason is that it doesn't feel like this just sort of i mean it, it's fun to read an adventure story but when when you get a bit older you want something that has a bit more nuance to it and a bit more layers to it so i think that one of the reasons i mean i kept finding new things about night of the black rose rereading it that i'd never picked up on before and i think it stands the test of time for that reason there's this there's these sort of multiple layers to it and and of course, we all know that the whole the idea of history being rewritten is something we're struggling with now in, in the oh, real yes. world. So, right, yes, um, it's, it's still relevant that idea. And I had done a fair amount of Soviet history when I was in, you know, my for my history major. Yeah, and that, there you go. And that's with Spectre of the Black Rose. The Vydrava salt mines came directly out of my pre-Soviet history class <laughs> at Marquette. As an author, I am hyper aware of everything wrong with everything I've written. Um, <laughs> I, so there are parts of the books that I am still happy with, and parts of those, some of those come about directly from places where I managed to personally insert myself as a writer into the story. Caradoc came directly from the fact that from the time that I was very little, I am largely sight impaired in my left eye and uh, had amblyopia. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I've got sort of the smorgasbord. I'm uh, red, green, colorblind, nearsighted in one eye and farsighted in the other. Um, And have, yes, it's, and there was a point at which I realized by the time I got to high school, I see the world in ways nobody else does. So when I look at something, I look at it and I see what I see, but I don't see, you know, other people because of the way in which my eyes physically function. Um, other people do not see the same. For Caradoc, when I'm writing, when I was writing that scene with him walking across the fugue plane, trying to contextualize that, that uh, new idea of perspective for himself. That was something I directly derived from. I wanted to talk about um, Caradoc a little bit because he appears, so you created him for Night of the Black Rose. He appears as Lord Soth's um, steward who kind of like, he's the person that Soth tasks to go to the abyss to get Kitty Ara's soul, which he ultimately 
he succeeds, but he doesn't give it to Soth, I think, is if I remember uh, correctly. Yeah, it, yes, it's it's complicated. But yes, <laughs> he he is basically somebody, you know, his role in a, in a medieval castle would have been he runs things day to day. That, and so Soth would have tasked him with whatever unpleasant task he needed somebody who was moderately trustworthy to do. But there's another Lord Soth novel that's written under the Dragonlance banner. Right. It's just called Lord Soth. I, is it Edo, Edo von Belcom? Edo von Belcom, yeah. Edo von Belcom, who wrote, who wrote this novel, um, which I also enjoy very much. I think that's a very good novel. So Caradoc, this character that you created, is presented very differently. Yes. Um, the way that he's presented in your novel is kind of this sniveling, like, cowardly sycophant type character. Um, whereas in the novel Lord Soth, he's one of Soth's, one of Soth's knights who becomes a skeletal warrior. Right. And the character of Caradoc, I thought he was really interesting in that novel because he's like, um, he's like a sociopath or he's like a, a psychopath, sociopath, antisocial type person. It's just... He will do just the most evil thing without a second thought. It's not like he enjoys. It's not he's doing it because he enjoys it or he gets some thrill yeah. out of it. He's just an empty person who will just do right. what he's told. Well, he's he's sort of playing the role that Azrael plays in in Night of the Five Rose. I mean, and that's yeah. why it's the it's the you know for Azrael it's because as he discovers in the course of the novel he actually does not have a soul. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he sure doesn't. <laughs> just a monster. I was wondering. I was wondering if there's like cross pollination between between the two novels, and does does one inform the other? Well, I mean, obviously, Night was written first, and the thing that was happening, and this I alluded to in, in one of the other comments, the thing that was happening between ninety three, ninety four, ninety five with the book department was there had been pretty careful coordination on continuity and coordination between games and books. That diminished when I left because a lot of the people working in books did not have the gaming background. When the new person came in and took over the department, he pretty much threw out a lot of the continuity stuff. I can't say for sure why, but I don't I do know that there were two strains of managerial creative issues going on in the company. One was that the game department was resentful of the fiction line driving the plot for the world. Uh, because the books were selling so many more copies, the fiction titles were selling so many more copies than the game material, more people knew the material from the uh, novels than they did from the game. So the Dark Sun novels far outsold the box set. The Ravenloft novels far outsold the box set. So if somebody knew Ravenloft, they knew it from the novels much more likely than they knew it from the games. And that created some unhappiness in the game design department. And, and with the Forgotten Realms in particular, there were getting to be so many novels that it was hard to keep the continuity straight. And, and some of the novels were actually messing with the larger continuity for the world. Around 94, around the time I left, 94, 95, there was kind of an active pushback where the game stuff pushed back against the fiction and undid a number of things that actually had been previously approved. And that sort of happened with Dragonlance too. You know, Dragons of Summer Flame ends with this sort of slate getting wiped clean. I mean, I don't know all the exact details. I've heard stories, but the idea that the, the 
they wanted to continue to develop Dragonlance games. So they had to figure out a way to make Dragons of Summer Flame work within this. And, and it just led to this sort of mix up, which is. Yeah. I mean, still so they, being, still being resolved. Right. The con, right. The continuity for it. And once you get into time travel and everything else, then it gets really <laughs> messy. The, so, and the other aspect that was, that was beginning to be a problem for the company was keeping track of that continuity is very time consuming and takes a lot of, a lot of effort and enthusiasm to even just keep the years that the book's supposed to take place in the forgotten. And, and wait, what was Tannis doing? in this book and that was how many years before this book um so one of the ways to deal with that is to just not deal with that so so yeah, well, so you, you <laughs> so you hire people to write novels and go yeah there's a guy named Caradoc do whatever you want here's his name here's his job your you, version of Caradoc is your version of Caradoc yeah another thing i noticed is that i feel like in your novel in Night of the Black Rose and also in the Soth as he was sort of originally conceived by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman he seems like somebody who was once upon a time a genuinely good person yes who strayed to the dark side so to speak and lost his way and, and turned to evil yes and the Lord Soth Dragonlance novel, Soth is very clearly evil from the beginning. He's like sending out Caradoc to murder his siblings so that they can't challenge him for his right. for his um his right to Dargar Keep. And there there's no question that he is some fallen paladin or some good good guy gone bad. He's just evil from He's the start. Yep. Um so I guess that I mean that must have figured in maybe uh, maybe the author of that novel had this different conception of Soth and, and, and it just, it didn't fit with your conception or with Margaret and Tracy's conception. And so it, he ends up feeling a little bit like a different character. Right. And that's, yes. And that was from an editorial publishing standpoint, those books are much easier to publish because you don't actually have to get the details right. Um, by that point, I was definitely not on good terms with, no. with TSR and I stayed well away from that material. Um, and that was to a certain extent, that was one of the other marching order things that was going on in the book department at the time. People were being separated from creations that might be associated with them. If the person running the book department was unhappy with that creator, mm. um, this is the era where they were going to have somebody other than Bob Salvatore write that Drist novel. Uh, Shorts of Dusk, <laughs> which got awfully close to being published at the printer when Wizards of the Coast platform. So I want to touch a little bit um, on Spectre of the Black Rose specifically, because Spectre of the Black Rose includes a lot of new characters who did not appear in the previous novels. My favorite is the Bloody Cobbler, but also the Whispering Beast and Inza. The Bloody Cobbler and the Whispering Beast are sort of manifestations of Soth's children. Oh, and the, the White Rose also as a manifestation of his his second wife, Soul. They're sort of manifested in, in Sithicus. And right. so what inspired you to create those types of characters? Well, the one of the things that I was trying to do when I when I plotted Spectre was come up with ways to explore Soth's story and the backstory for his character in ways that would be unexpected. And more horror. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things, just as a writer, in the years between when I wrote Night of the Black Rose and, and even Crusade before it, they're very pretty straightforward uh, adventure tales. Prince of Lies is not, and Spectre of the Black Rose is definitely not. The approach to it is much more informed by European horror 
and that weird, you know, the Vandermeers did a, a an amazing anthology called The Weird. That is a terrific uh, book of horror stories you may not have encountered. Uh, there's a lot of European stuff. There's a lot of things from around the world that, that normally don't get translated into the U.S. Uh, g- give that a look if you're interested in, in expanding your vision of horror. And that's where uh, some of the, especially the, the cobbler and the, the beast come from, is uh, leaning into that European horror tradition. They're definitely horrific. You got the one, the bloody cobbler cutting the soles of people's feet off and whispering beasts all covered in hair and filth and got ears around his neck. I mean, that's... And, and whispering people, whispering in, whispering in <laughs> people's the, ears until they... Jabs his ears out. That's, yeah, that's tries really... to tries to go deaf. Yes, it that's is really dark stuff. It is. Yes, it is much more of a horror novel. The whole thing with the salt shadows and everything mm-hmm. else is all very much leaning more heavily into a horror novel. But I do love that novel. I mean, it, it's it's certainly I, it feels it feels like a, de- a departure, but also a natural evolution from. Especially if you include um if you include when black roses bloom as kind of the, the central right. entry into it because right. you're, you're sort of seeing Soth he he comes into Sithicus one way and then he's just kind of fading and fading and fading and then he's he's, he's sort of dragged back into reality in Spectre of the Black Rose. Um, yes, and that yes, and that's exactly what the plan was, and you know Lisa did such a fine job with Black Roses Bloom in making that arc possible. So you can you can look at that adventure and see it as was the intent. When I plotted it out and I pitched it to the game department, um, that was the intent. That was going to be the middle ground where to give players a way into that setting where they could interact with Soth in different ways that would then set up for, like I said, what I had envisioned the end of Spectre of the Black Rose is in my head when I'm writing the end of Night of the Black Rose. The bloody cobbler and the beast and that stuff, that was new. That, that came about in the intervening years. But the, but the ending where it, where it ends up was, was there from the start. I wanted to ask about a certain element of Spectre of the Black Rose that I really, this ties back into Dragonlance because this is, so in Night of the Black Rose, he is looking for Kitiara's soul. In Spectre of the Black, and in, in when Black Rose is bloom, he's still looking for Kitiara's soul. In Spectre of the Black Rose, he is looking for the white rose that he thinks is Kitiara and turns out right. to be a soul. Right. I personally have never bought the Soth and Kitiara relationship. I just, I don't see it. I don't know why Soth is so into her. I just, it just doesn't work for me. I mean, she's, she's a great character, but is she the kind of character that drives men into this? I, I don't know. I, it just didn't work for me. I didn't see Soth as in that way. The reason I always took it that Soth was pursuing Kitiara that way is because he had decided that was what was going to happen and he is so incapable of changing his mind mm-hmm. that once he had decided that's it and she's going to be in love with me and that's the end of it is you know he's just the horrible stalkery guy that doesn't yeah. stop calling and it's part of his flaw yeah and, and i i like the fact that she sort of plays him kitiara sort of plays him because that's really what he deserves. And then um, in the ear novel, when it turns out it's not Kitty R, it turns out it's a soul. I've, I really yes. like that twist. I feel that like- was, yes. And that was, I wanted to be able, I wanted to be able to do something where it's again, playing into Soth's understanding of his own story and assuming, well, of course this has to be Kitty R because that's been the story up to this point. Mm-hmm. That's what the expectation is. 
but there is more to it than that. And there are these other characters who have largely been forgotten. The two in, children, sauce yeah, two children. But yeah, the, the children and the the child and the um and the the wives have largely been forgotten in this, marginalized by Soth being that strong central character. And so that was a way of of pulling them back into the into the orbit of that story and giving them voices to to some extent too. For what it's worth, I think that those relationships are much more compelling than the relationship between Soth and Kidiar ever was. So I applaud you for kind of making that the making that twist at the end of Spectre of the Black Rose. I think it, it's really effective and it really I don't I don't know. I just think the relationship between Soth and Assault just feels so much more complicated and so much more real than Soth and Kidiar ever did. So I love that. I don't know if anyone else agrees with me, but I love it. <laughs> well, she is a match for him in that setting. Yeah. I mean, he is, Soth is outmaneuvered at almost every stage up until the end where he essentially asserts his will and basically then reclaims who he is, which, which is something that should be happening because, of course, he's not the character he is when he entered Scythicus. Mm-hmm. And he's, and, and he has to be that character again, uh, the, the full monster in full denial when he gets back to uh, Corinne for Margaret and Tracy then to do what they want to do with it. Uh, you told me online that there was supposed to be a third Scythicus novel, not necessarily a Lord Soth novel, right? but a Scythicus novel that never quite materialized. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, well, the original idea, and this came up on, on one of the fan discussion sites about the difference between the cover of Spectre of the Black Rose, the cover design, and the cover designs for the original uh, TSR books. Spectre was supposed to be, uh, intended to be a, a full relaunch of the Ravenloft line. Uh, the book sales had fallen off pretty significantly at the end of the TSR era, and Margaret and Tracy wanted Soth back because Mary Kirchhoff had come back to the department to take over the department, and Peter Atkinson, who I will be eternally grateful for, came in when Wizards bought TSR and settled all of the outstanding problems that I had and said, come back and write a book for me. And that was really the the way, the, the path that opened up for Spectre to happen. Um, and because Margaret and Tracy wanted to bring the character back, Mary talked to me and said, oh, I know you already had this set up for you know where it was going to go. So uh, the idea was that, that Spectre would completely relaunch the Ravenloft line some of the older books would be, then be re-released in paperback with updated designs for some of the covers. And then there would be new books. And my idea was that there would be a post-Soth Scythicus novel called Wake of the Black Rose, which would focus on uh, Inza and the Wanderers and Azrael and what the domain becomes in the absence of Soth. But because Soth's story still shaped the domain, Soth would be this presence in the book, even though he was not in the book. And that would be a way to then, then to continue the domain and continue the stuff that I created. And, and it flips at the end of Spectre of the Black Rose, where it becomes a domain that tortures the Dark Lord with the truth rather than torturing the Dark Lord with mm-hmm with uh, false versions, Inza can't escape the truth. 
Yeah. And and the Wanderers and the other characters, you know, and Azrael's running around claiming to be Dark Lord and he's not. And, you know, um, Poor Azrael. He just can't win. He cannot. <laughs> I, I like Azrael a lot. Uh, that would have been, I think, would have been a good third story to sort of create an arc for the land that wasn't just tied in with Soth and then would have given, a, I think, a little more grounding to the material I had created around soft for the books that was something i discussed uh initially tsr was enthusiastic about it but there was an upper management change in attitude toward fiction uh not long after specter came out where they decided they were not going to support a lot of things with fiction and that immediately got rolled back Pretty much, you started seeing a lot of the lines that they had been doing withering and being uh, closed down. Uh, the book almost got resurrected at White Wolf. There was a, uh, at the period where Art House uh, had the license for Ravenloft, I came back and wrote some material for the White Wolf stuff. You know, sort of, a, a, this is what Sithicus is like in the wake of, of Sock leaving. We tried to negotiate to get permission to do Ravenloft fiction at White Wolf because Wizards of the Coast was not publishing any. Uh, and we got, we got through quite a few negotiations and it got very close to happening. And then Wizards decided, no, we don't want people publishing Ravenloft fiction that we're not doing because that'll make us look bad. If they succeed, they'll, they'll want to know why we're not doing it. And the plan at White Wolf was I was actually going to be the line editor again for for the fiction. These places have gravity, these lines. You can never really escape them. And, and so the plan would have been, the first novel would have been Christy Golden's sequel to Vampire the Mist. So there's a multiverse out there where I can go and read Vampire the Mists 2 and yes. <laughs> Wake of the Black Rose. And Wake of the Black Rose, published <laughs> published by White Wolf. Published by White Wolf. It's sad. I mean, I I love Inza. I would love to see a uh, a novel with her sort of, I mean, she's, she's a fantastic villain. This kind of like psychotic brat teenager. Yes. And that's, <laughs> so that's, yeah, Veronica had a lot to do who, who came in. You and I have talked about this a little bit. What happened with Spectre was partway through writing it. My dad was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer and I was spending a ton of time driving back and forth between Wisconsin and Massachusetts. And I had plotted the book and wrote, I think probably at least half of uh, the book and uh, the deadline couldn't move. And so I needed to get a co-author and, and I've, I'd known Veronica for a long time uh, and she had expressed some interest. I'd seen some of her writing. And so I handed her the plotting, the, the breakdowns for the Inza chapters and she drafted them. And then I rewrote what she had sent so that it, it kept a, a consistent writing tone through the whole thing. But she did a fantastic job and then went on to write several of her own novels in the Forgotten Realms for uh, for Wizards of the Coast. Very talented writer. So what I want to know next is the sort of demise of Lord Soth. Because after Spectre of the Black Rose, in, in Story World, he goes back to Kryn. And then when we next see him, it's in Dragons of a Vanished Moon the by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. He's confronted by, by Mina, who is the Dark Queen's kind of, her Joan of Arc. And she tries to recruit Soth into the army. Soth says no. Takesis turns him back into a mortal and he dies. He, he seems to die with a sense of 
that he he was wrong and that he regrets what he did and maybe there's at least a, a small amount of repentance at the end there so right. i want to what i want to know is i mean margaret weiss and tracy hickman it, it it almost feels like they brought him back just to kill him off <laughs> and 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 secondly does that feel i mean they created the character so i mean i suppose they should know but does that feel genuine to us do we think that soth could come to at least even a small measure of redemption or, or repentance it, sure it depends on how it's written i mean yeah and as far as you know what margaret and tracy did with the character i am basically completely agnostic on that they <laughs> you know my my goal was to give them back the character so they could have it as he left and then they could do with him as they wanted and whatever that was is fine <laughs> i'm i and and it's up to the it's up to margaret tracy and the readers to decide if if that's successful right um is it the is it the soft story i would have written uh, no but but that's okay there can be different voices for the camera yeah i wonder if it, it harkens back a little bit too to this sort of old school concept or the original conception of soft that we were discussing earlier about soft as somebody who who did have a spark of good in him once sure. upon a time and uh and the idea that he's able to sort of reignite that it feels like a very Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman kind of thing to do. I feel like they they like stories where these characters are sort of redeemed. People people turn away from evil at the end and turn towards good. So in that sure. sense, it feels very true to them and who they are as authors. Sure. Um, as somebody who likes downer endings, <laughs> I kind of I I kind of feel like Soth should not have been redeemed. You want a really downer ending for Soth? Let me tell you. <laughs> so Soth gets the castle dropped on him and he dies and he thinks he's redeemed mm -hmm. and he ends up back in Ravenloft oh, as, yeah, a, I love as that. a as a human knight without his powers. Oh, that's a good story too. <laughs> <laughs> so in alternate dimension storytelling time, there's another option. I think Margaret and Tracy had a very clear idea for the story they wanted to tell. They probably needed an extra 32 pages in the book to be able to bring that arc clearer. The comments that I've seen about readers saying, well, it's too abrupt. Well, it's there. I mean, and it's, and as you say, I think it's true to the, the types of stories they tell. So maybe they needed more room. Maybe that story will come out. I mean, that's the other, that's the other part of this. As long as, as long as they're telling stories about this stuff, then the, the hope can always be that they get a chance to, to expand it. One thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about um, was how do we deal with Soth in 2022? So if we're 1986 or whenever, whenever Dragons of Spring Dawning was released and we meet Lord Soth and then the books that you're publishing through the 90s, I mean, the 90s, that was the cool thing to have this like this like badass warrior guy who is, you know, he's got this tragic backstory and he's all dark and brooding like Batman sure. and Wolverine and all these different oh, characters and Spawn and Sirik in the Forgotten Realms was the same way. He's that you know, Sirik is the same sort of toxic, absolutely toxic character, and people mistake him for oh, he's so cool. No, he's not. Yeah. He's a he's a monster. <laughs> you know, he's he's a very '90s sort of anti-hero. Yes. Um, and maybe the community at large didn't have sort of the perspectives on the on these issues of, of violence against women and domestic violence that that we have now. Correct. So I feel the people throw the word problematic around too much, in my opinion. But I think that there's definitely a problematic element to Soth. The idea that Soth is, he, he's this good guy, 
but then oh he he made some mistakes he killed a couple of wives he killed a couple of children uh killed a couple innocent people over over his his course of time and then and then oh but he gets redeemed at the end and it's I mean, does this does this happen in real life? Do we ever see right. these, you know, wife beaters and child killers find this moment of redemption at the end of their lives? It doesn't seem. I mean, that just doesn't happen. That's the person who does those things doesn't have that sort of core of redemption in them. Well, and even if they do, and you know, the idea that people can improve and get better, and there has to be room in the world for people to change for the better. That's all true, but. Does that mean then the character having that redemption at the end of the story is satisfying? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Knight of the Black Rose and Spectre of the Black Rose are horror novels. Soth is a bad guy. Yeah. He is not supposed to be redeemed. He is accepting his horrific hellish fate at the end of the second book because he deserves it. He's a monster. He's yeah. not supposed to be seen as cool. I think you're absolutely onto something in terms of the limitations of 80s and 90s fantasy stories telling those kind of limited narratives and the assumption being that the audience is going to figure out that you're not saying you're supporting this idea that this character is cool. But the problem is the audience doesn't always get it. Mm -hmm. And I got a letter from a guy in prison in Michigan after Night of the Black asking me if I'd ever killed anybody because I wrote about it so convincing. Oh, geez. Um, I got a, I got another email from a guy who was a really super infamous hacker. This was not that many years ago, out of nowhere, talking about how, you know, Soth taught him about infamy. And you can never, I mean, and, and it's that danger of how the audience processes this stuff and may walk away you know the number of people in the forgotten realms who think Sirik is cool he's not he's not Sirik is is flat out a monster no question and, and i can speak definitively to that as you know the co-creator for Sirik. no he's a monster no don't you don't want no don't from a narrative point of view how do you how do you rescue these stories you get other perspectives telling them I mean, you know, where does where does the story of Soth go next? If I were in charge of the fiction program at Wizards of the Coast and there was going to be another Dragonlance novel about Soth, I would want to see a woman write the story from the perspective of his wives or the banshees or to add that additional context to it so that as you add those stories together, it gives you actually the context that's missing in the older material. One of the ideas that I've had, or when I conceive of Soth in the modern era, I try to think of, you really got to lean into Soth as the, as the monster. You know, he can't be, he can't be the tragic hero anymore. He needs to be just pure evil. And if you've got, if you're, if you're running your Dungeons and Dragons game and you've got Soth and you've got some great way to, to redeem him or turn him from evil, that's fine. But I think that if you, if you want to still use Lord Soth as a character, knowing now what we know about these these topics, right. you, you got to really lean into that hard. He's got to be the villain. You know, he's the evil that you're trying to stop. Well, and it's and and it's understanding that the conclusion of these stories is more complicated than simple closure. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I mean, that was the advantage that I had at the end of Spectre of the Black Rose is I didn't have to close Soth's story. I just had to basically make him pay 
which was satisfying for him to have to, you know, accept all of your crimes, you monster. And, and you can't escape your wife and kid you allowed to die. Not really? Dead sure. <laughs> and here they are right here in front of you. Yeah. And you're, you know, you are confronted with that. So, you know, as a, as a horror story, that works as a, as a repudiation of Sop as a heroic character. I think that works um, because he's not the tragic hero. He's a monster. But where you go from there, and if you're going to cap the character's story and say, and this is the end, it's, it's harder to do with that. I, I'm, I'm actually wrestling with that with a character. I created this neo pulp kind of version of the spider shadow called the corpse. Mm-hmm. And the first story I wrote was the, way late in the character's development where he is a monster at the end and he is supposed to embody all of the psychotic reactionary things about the worst versions of Batman vigilante heroes. And that, that was the first story I wrote. And since then I've been backing up and telling earlier stories and how he got there. And I'm still left with the, now I got to figure out what to do with him at the end. And the (laughs) idea of, you know, is there a way to actually redeem this character? Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe not. And if that's the case, then the story becomes about the characters that are surrounding the would-be protagonist who becomes the villain. You can leave his story sort of unresolved and and say, you know, we're never going to fully understand what makes an evil person do these terrible things. And and, and what matters, I suppose, especially if you're playing a Dungeons & Dragons game, is what matters is not Soth, it's the players and their sort of arc as they're confronting his evil and, and oh and that's it... yep that's exactly right and that's the thing about about having your player characters interact with these characters from fiction who from the fiction especially who are uh relatively fixed points mm-hmm. is you don't need to change their story you change their story by how your characters interact with them. yeah so i suppose that's i suppose that's where i would leave it with soth in the 21st century you know let let the players sort of work out their own their own issues if they want, or work out their characters' issues, you know, reflected against this mirror, so to speak, of, of Lord Song. And and there's an infinite number of those stories to be told, depending on yeah. who's sitting around the table. I think that's all that I have for you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I am sure our fans appreciate it. And this for me has been a singular privilege. Do you have a website or a social media that you recommend our listeners check out if they're interested in learning more about you and your work or any of your projects uh, upcoming at Chaosium? Best place to follow me on social media is on Facebook, James Louder. You'll be able to tell from all of the publishing stuff in, in my feed. I am actually doing more uh, writing these days, which is awesome. I am thrilled to be working on a couple of short stories that I'll be announcing on social media shortly. Uh, I just did a, going back to my initial freelance roots, just wrote an essay about the Vincent Price horror movie, Witchfinder General, for a book, Transgressive Horror, by Gosho uh, Press. From Chaosium, I've got uh, a couple of book projects that will finally be seeing print, things that I'm I'm shepherding for other editors, anthologies, Sisterhood, uh, which is a collection of stories by women authors, uh, horror stories set in religious institutions across the ages, and The Leaves of a Necronomicon, edited by Joe Pulver, 
which tells the story of a single copy of the Necronomicon over time. It's a braided novel uh, by uh, different authors telling about what happens to each one of the owners of this book over the over the course of its lifespan. Um, and those will both be in ebook. Uh, Sisterhood's out in ebook now. Leaves will be out in ebook shortly. Both will be out in print by the end of the year. Uh, I've got another big project with one of my favorite authors coming up that we'll announce uh, from Chaos and shortly. So I'm I'm very busy, uh, which mm-hmm. is which which is awesome. I'm I'm thrilled to be able to to keep doing this, and I appreciate everybody's interest in the work I did on TSR for TSR on these lines, and and you know, thank you for all your support. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been wonderful. Thank you all for listening. For links and more information, please check out the show notes or just visit us at dragonlancenexus.com slash podcast. 